4: Good morning, I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. Something's cooking at a lab in California that could forever change life at the dinner table. First, consider this. The chicken and turkey market in this country is a billion-dollar industry. But now there's the promise of a scientific breakthrough that could radically change the way we get our poultry and save an untold number of chickens which is why we ordered up this report from Alison
5: Aubrey. This facility just might be what a chicken farm of the future looks like.
6: This is real meat, no compromise, made in front of you.
5: So you grew this chicken in these tanks behind us? Yes. Without ever slaughtering a chicken?
6: You could ask me that a, a thousand times and the answer is yes, 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 we grew it right here. Meat
5: without the animal. Coming up on Sunday morning.
4: As for our Tracy Smith, she's looking back on an early chapter in the life of young Jacqueline Kennedy and the job that led her from camera girl to first lady.
7: Young Jacqueline Bouvier grew up dreaming of being a writer, not a housewife. And when JFK finally popped the question, she kept him guessing.
8: She did not give him a formal response
7: right away. He asked her to marry him, and she didn't immediately say yes. She waited a week. Jackie before Jack. Coming up on Sunday
4: morning. Also ahead this morning, Martha Teichner introduces us to a man who took a month-long walk and wound up finding the spirit of America. On the subject of walking, Jim Axelrod reports on an alarming spike in the number of pedestrian deaths. Moronka travels to Martha's Vineyard to talk with poet Rose Styron, wife of late novelist William Styron. Humor from Jim Gaffigan and more, this Sunday morning for the 9th of July, 2023. We'll be back in a moment.
0: This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. As an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500.
9: Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Start your confidence journey today with bite.
4: Grilled, fried, or broiled, we love our chicken. Now comes word of an innovation cooked up in a lab that's good news for everyone, especially the chicken. Here's
5: Alison Aubrey of NPR. For thousands of years, humans have slaughtered animals for meat. But Dr. Uma Valetti dreamt of a different way.
6: You don't have to kill a chicken to eat chicken.
5: He figured out how to grow meat directly from animal cells. It's completely different from Beyond Meat or Impossible, which are made from plant-based ingredients, including vegetable proteins.
6: This is real meat, no compromise, made in front of you.
5: So you grew this chicken in these tanks behind us Yes. without ever slaughtering a chicken?
6: You could ask me that a, a thousand times, and the answer is yes, 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 we grew it right here. They're getting the oxygen. The His
5: company, Upside Foods, just received clearance from the USDA to start selling their meat, made at this production center in Emeryville, California.
6: We'll be able to produce 50 to 75,000 pounds of meat every year right away.
5: The process begins here. Animal cells have been extracted from an egg or live chicken.
6: All the cells that make the cut of high-quality cells make it into this seed lab.
5: This is the equivalent of a hatchery. The cells are frozen in tiny vials.
6: And from that small amount, we can grow thousands of pounds of meat.
5: So it only takes a thimble full of cells to start the whole process of growing thousands of pounds of meat. Yeah. Coaxing the cells to multiply and grow into meat is part alchemy.
6: So this is a live cultivator. That means this is actually right now involved in growing chicken.
5: This turbine mixes in all the food the cells need to grow. Amino acids, fats, vitamins.
6: The idea really is when an animal is alive, there's blood circulating, constantly something is moving around in the animal's body, touching the cells in the animal's body. We're just recreating that.
5: Valetti says in about 10 days, these cells have grown into chicken that's ready to cook. Just a few years ago, Everybody was saying, this is science fiction.
6: Yes. Making 50,000 pounds of chicken a year, it was, it's like a dream come true.
5: Growing up in India, his big dream was to become a cardiologist, a dream he realized with the help of his parents.
6: They always knew my goal in life was to become a cardiologist, and I only wanted to train at the Mayo Clinic. And uh, I trained at the Mayo Clinic. It was not easy to get there, and it was a lot of work. Working with heart attack
5: patients, his team set out to use stem cells to regrow heart muscle. And he figured, why not grow animal meat in a similar way?
6: I realized that we were raising 70 billion animals every year to feed about 7 billion people. When I looked at the environmental impact of that, it was an astronomical impact. And the amount of feed that goes to feed animals, to feed us, that equation just seemed wrong.
5: Livestock is responsible for an estimated one-third of all human-induced methane emissions, a potent greenhouse gas. And so though Velletti loved to eat meat, he had become a vegetarian. But the scientist in him saw a solution. And his father, a veterinarian, was an early supporter. He loved animals. It wasn't just his dad who saw the opportunity. The very first venture capitalist the Velletti wrote to said yes.
6: I did not even know what a VC meant at that point.
5: that was about eight years ago. Now, there's nearly three billion dollars invested in more than 100 cultivated meat startups around the globe, says the Bruce Friedrich. He's head of the nonprofit Good Food Institute, which promotes alternative proteins,
0: even companies like Tyson and Cargill the two largest meat companies in the United States. They have both invested in two different cultivated meat companies.
5: A report from Boston Consulting Group estimates that if just 11% of meat was swapped for protein alternatives like cultivated meat, by 2035, it would have the same environmental impact as switching 95% of airplanes to renewable
0: energy. Cultivated meat requires a fraction of the land, uh, requires a fraction of the water. doesn't require antibiotics in the production. This is just a whole new way of making the exact same meat that people love.
5: Not um, everyone products. is convinced. Critics say whether cultivated meat can cut carbon dioxide emissions depends in part on whether its production facilities are powered by renewable fuel. The meat industry currently has the efficiency of its large
3: scale.
0: It needs to compete on price and taste. Cultivated meat already competes on taste. It's already there, but it's got a ways to go before it competes on price. It needs to scale up.
5: So until then, it will be priced at a premium. We got a taste of Upside's chicken, which was pan seared with white wine, lemon, and butter.
6: Well, this is chicken piccata presented just like you would get at a wonderful restaurant in the neighborhood.
5: Hmm. Very chewy.
6: And you want that. Definitely
5: meat. the texture yes. of chicken. It, it tastes just like
6: chicken. It is chicken, we've been talking about it. (sighs) Chicken without killing a chicken.
5: You cannot buy this meat in grocery stores yet, but just last weekend, Michelin-starred chef Dominique Crenn served it to customers for the first time ever in her San Francisco (laughs) restaurant. (laughs) For Valletti, upside success is bittersweet. He lost his father to COVID, just as he struggled to get the company off the ground.
6: Yeah. I feel my dad's presence every day in my life. Um, I think he's seen me growing up and wanting to go after things that matter a lot, so I think he's there cheering.
5: It was tough to walk away from his promising career in medicine, but Valetti says he's not looking back.
6: This seems very unreasonable to everybody in the world, but I think we'll need people who are unreasonable to be able to change. What we don't like in this world.
0: T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network, from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today.
10: Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and
11: taxes and fees may vary.
2: Ah. The comfort of your
4: favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana.
11: It
12: doesn't get any better than this.
4: Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes.
12: There really is no place like home.
4: And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. The dictionary defines ramble as a walk for pleasure without a definite route. Martha Teichner catches up with a man who went on a ramble and discovered America along the way.
13: In March 2021, Neil King Jr., left his home in Washington, D.C. and went for a walk. King would walk 330 miles all the way to New York City. It would take him 26 days. He retraced his steps with us this spring, heading off down the mall with the U.S. Capitol at his back. Did you feel the weight of who we are now and what we are as a country
12: as you set forth. Yeah, very much so. I mean, this is the front yard, the nation's front yard, and it just seemed like the perfect place to start this walk.
13: Just weeks after the January 6th attack on the Capitol, after a year of COVID. Walking through my first covered Amish bridge. What King experienced along the way, sticking to back roads, would become a book, American Ramble.
12: I had set out with a wonder, first stirred by a sickness. A jolt of fear had opened a seam of freedom, and I had slipped through.
13: After a career as a Wall Street Journal reporter, the walk was his way of contemplating America, past and present, and at 61, his own life, after surviving esophageal cancer.
12: I was off to do something that was very pure and basic, which was just to notice things and immerse myself in a, in a walk through one spring that it had kind of cleansed my eyes in some ways, or my spirit. You'll see the exact line between Maryland and Pennsylvania, the Mason-Dixon line. It runs right through the middle of this incredible 19th century German farm the Mason-Dixon line, until
13: after the Civil War, the dividing line between slavery and freedom. King asked himself, whose history gets forgotten and who's remembered? Who are the memory keepers? In the 1700s,
14: it was a mill and a farm.
13: Up the road in York, Pennsylvania, he visited Michael Helfrich, the mayor.
14: In the 1920s, you had the uh, migration of African Americans up from Bamberg, South Carolina, but by the 1950s and 1960s, uh, the the great fathers of the community decided it was a ghetto and they used the uh, first use of eminent domain to wipe out the entire neighborhood. What do they want to put in instead? You're standing in it, a park and then To add insult to injury, they took half of the park and gave it to the industry next door for a parking lot and a new building.
13: The much older Cookus House, built in 1741, barely escaped demolition.
14: That is Thomas Paine right there. Helfrich
13: lives in it and has turned it into a shrine to founding father Thomas Paine, who stayed here during the Revolutionary War.
15: We have here our underground railroad conductors.
13: Across town, King met another of York's memory keepers, Samantha Dorm.
15: We have United States Colored Troops. I believe we have about 32 um, that fought during the Civil War.
13: Dorm leads the restoration of York's long-neglected African-American Lebanon Cemetery.
15: Since 2019, our volunteer group coming out here we've uncovered over 800 of the flat markers.
13: The point is to rescue the stories of lives.
15: It makes a difference when you're learning about people who not only look like you, but who are related to you, and to be able to say, I come from greatness. I know now that I'm related to over 100 individuals on this land alone of my family.
12: Time became a thing that awed Neil King. This is one of the oldest rivers in the world. It's like the fifth oldest river in the world. It's 320 million years something, way older than the Nile.
13: As he made his way along the Susquehanna River with Paul Nevin.
12: We
14: have all these different tracks in here.
13: Whose passion is these Native American petroglyphs, possibly a thousand years old.
14: There's a bird track here. We have, this is a little infant-sized human footprint here. And then this is like a
0: serpent would make, a creepy crawly.
13: As King walked, time seemed to slow down and then stop altogether as he found himself among Pennsylvania's Mennonites. He chanced upon this. And then, this.
12: Well, the serendipity was the the magic. And I met, you know, so many great people that I almost felt were put there by some higher power to, to interact with me.
13: He drifted from the ethereal, to the concrete, to the very real
12: world of everything his walk was not. I have arrived at where I've wanted to come, which is the heart of darkness itself. That is to say, the Jersey Turnpike, I-95, the main artery of commerce for the United States of America.
13: Time took on new meaning as he toured the final resting place of some of that commerce, New Jersey's Middlesex County Landfill with Brian Murray, the man who runs it.
0: We tip about uh, 1,600
16: tons of garbage a day, and last year we buried somewhere around just shy of about 540,000 tons of garbage.
13: On top of an astonishing garbage mountain that will rise another 12 feet this year.
12: We're walking through a whole scale of time, a measure of time. Where are we right here? I think we're like the early 60s, maybe the late 50s. So end of the Eisenhower administration, basically. And up there is today. And this bridge, right there. A
13: depressing return to now? No. As King crossed the Bayonne Bridge, he spotted his destination, Manhattan.
12: I was just sort of overwhelmed. It was like I was hit by a, a wave of elation, rapture, a full-body sense of elation. It wasn't like the city was some new thing, but I had, my eyes had been renewed in a way.
13: A day later, Neil King Jr.'s American Ramble ended at the Ramble in New York Central Park, a twisted network of paths that reminded him of the complexity of the country he had sampled.
12: You know, in the end, I think the walk, despite all the kind of gloomy thoughts that you can have about various episodes from our history and our past, uh, left me a lot more optimistic in a way about our future than um, had been the case when I walked out the door.
13: To find gratitude and
12: joy at
13: three miles an hour, traveling light.
3: Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs.
2: CarMax, the way car buying should be.
4: Your parents warned you to look both ways before you cross. But Jim Axelrod tells us that whatever your age, crossing the street is increasingly dangerous.
17: So this is the Roosevelt This Boulevard. is it, Route 1. It's been nearly a decade since a drive down Philadelphia's Roosevelt Boulevard was no big deal for LaTanya Byrd. Yes.
18: So
4: was July, 16, 2013, a very hot summer day.
17: And it never will be again. It's
1: just crazy, this road. And no matter how many times people die on this Roosevelt Boulevard, the city, the drivers just, they don't pay attention to the speed.
17: Latanya's 27-year-old niece, Samara Banks, her four sons and her sister, were walking home on Roosevelt Boulevard from a family get-together. But these two cars came up and they just hit them so hard. The two cars, street racing at nearly 40 miles an hour over the speed limit, killed Samara and three of her sons. To this day, LaTanya blames not just the two speeding drivers, but the design of Roosevelt Boulevard itself, which allows cars to travel at high speeds and the worst to happen. Could have it happened even if these guys weren't drag racing,
4: Yes, the, the Roosevelt Boulevard, you know, was designed a long time ago. So as time changed, you know, the the population increased
17: in that area. But as the neighborhood grew around the 12-lane boulevard, the ways for people to cross did not. As people moved into that
4: area, they had to cross. So how was that person, if they lived on the other side of the Roosevelt Boulevard,
17: how were they going to get across? This is one of the most dangerous streets in Philadelphia, a city that, according to preliminary data, saw 59 pedestrians killed by vehicles in 2022, a 40% jump from the year before. Are the deaths on Roosevelt Boulevard, pedestrian deaths caused by automobiles, vehicles, are they preventable? Yes, they are preventable.
2: It turns out when we build things unsafe for pedestrians, we build them unsafe for everybody. There's really nobody winning in this system.
17: Beth Osborne, who runs the nonprofit Transportation for America, says Philadelphia mirrors a national trend when it comes to pedestrian deaths. More than 7,500 pedestrians were killed in crashes in 2022, the highest number in 40 years and an average of 20 people a day. Who pays the price most often and significantly in this country?
2: Black and Native Americans, by far.
17: One study found Black Americans are more than twice as likely for each mile walked to be struck and killed by a vehicle as white pedestrians.
2: These are populations that are more likely to need to walk for lack of access to a reliable automobile. You also, in those neighborhoods, tend to have uh, roadways that were built to get people through them quickly and not necessarily take care of the folks in the neighborhood.
17: And pedestrian fatalities as a whole went up 77% from 2010 to 2021 after decreasing in the three decades before. What has happened in the last decade?
2: We can look at the turning point at 2009, and that's around the time smartphones were becoming very popular. It's also the time we saw cars starting to get, and trucks getting much bigger. And when they crash into particularly a person that's not protected by more steel, then it's going to be more deadly.
17: But more than the design of vehicles, Osborne blames the design of our roads themselves for the alarming rise in pedestrian fatalities.
2: We build our roadways to move vehicles, and we often make no space on them for anyone outside of a vehicle.
17: Throw in speed limits she says are too high in areas where there's a lot of foot traffic.
2: Speed is so central to what generates mistakes and what makes them deadly.
17: And you've got a recipe for tragedy. Osborne took us to an intersection in Langley Park, Maryland, to show us how decades of design prioritized drivers at the peril of pedestrians.
2: The traffic speeds are high. The crossing distances for someone walking is long. They have these features like what we're standing next to called a slip lane that allows the cars to take a right turn very, very fast like that. The communication to the driver is don't slow down, but stop in an instant. If there's a person there
10: we can do better right
2: we can totally do better these are not hard things to change
10: you have family homes and families living john barth that, is trying uh, to do better for his city but despite that this is built 100 percent for cars not for people
17: he's on the city council in indianapolis
10: where he's trying to implement an approach called complete streets having bike lanes, having bump outs, having uh, streets that have been on a street diet, so there's fewer lanes. Those are the changes that will over time send clear signals to drivers that you need to think about the neighborhood and the pedestrians around you.
17: In a neighborhood near Butler University on the city's north side, Barth says city planners'
10: awareness of pedestrians translates to safer streets. So if you look at the sidewalk you can see there's space between the sidewalk and the street so pedestrians feel safe when they're walking. They have a buffer between them and the street. In the middle of the street you have an island that is a signal to drivers that you should be driving slowly. You point out these islands in the middle.
17: Does that sort of subconsciously tell the driver to slow down in addition to the speed limit sign?
10: Yeah, so even if they're not thinking about it, that is forcing them to constrain their driving because there's something that's visually telling them, you can't speed here. With a record 40
17: pedestrian fatalities in his city last year, Barth says the time for change is now.
10: The status quo is not acceptable. A single pedestrian dying in any given year is not acceptable. In Philly,
17: they're hoping new approaches will work as well. In 2020, speed cameras were introduced on Roosevelt Boulevard. And crashes have dropped 36%. The city's also pledged $78 million from the Biden administration's infrastructure plan to make the boulevard safer.
4: You know, my family didn't die in vain. You know, it has to be something that something has to be done.
17: Too late to save Latanya Byrd's family from heartbreak, but hopefully, it will save
11: many others. Are you there, Senator? Yes, right here, Mr. Morrow. Good evening, sir. Thank you. Good evening, Mrs. Kennedy.
2: Good
3: evening.
11: Uh, I understand that the two of you had a very much publicized courtship. Uh, how did the two of you meet?
3: We met um, at the house of a friend about two years ago.
4: Before becoming American royalty, Jacqueline Bouvier was a working woman, and as Tracy Smith tells us, her first big job led to a life-changing first date.
19: Mrs.
10: John F. Kennedy, third youngest of the 29 wives to live in the White House.
7: If you were alive in February of 1962, there's a good chance you saw this.
10: Mrs. Kennedy, I want to thank you for letting
16: us uh, visit your official home.
7: First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy's tour of the newly restored White House was broadcast on all three TV networks to an audience of about 80 million. This is wallpaper that was printed in France about 1834. It's all scenes of America.
0: Those are beautiful wing chairs over there.
3: They are pretty.
7: But people who knew her well say that the real Jackie was not at all like the flawless figurine who appeared on screen. It seems that some people assume that the most interesting thing about Jacqueline Bouvier is that she married a
8: Kennedy. You know, I think the presumption has been that uh, her life only became interesting after she married him, when in fact, because she was so interesting, he married her. I'm good.
7: Carl Sraza Anthony is author of a dozen books about first ladies. His latest, Camera Girl, by an imprint of our sister company, Simon & Schuster, is about Jacqueline Bouvier before everything. A young woman who once wrote that her ambition was not to be a housewife.
8: She had a, a rather dim view of marriage. She felt very strongly, even as a young woman in the early 1950s, she should not marry before she had somehow established herself.
7: What Jacqueline Bouvier wanted was to be a writer, and she was willing to start at the bottom. And back then, this was the bottom. A column in Washington's Times-Herald called The Inquiring Photographer later changed to Inquiring Camera Girl." Her job was to take pictures of passers-by and ask their opinions about random topics like women in politics or how a
8: wolf whistle made them feel. But she's asking strangers on the streets of Washington, 10 years before becoming the world's most famous woman. She was fearless,
7: charming and single. And some of Jackie's friends, like newsman Charles Bartlett and his wife Martha, thought she'd be a perfect match for the most eligible bachelor in town a certain congressman from Massachusetts. The Bartletts were close friends of both Jackie and JFK, and they would stay close. Charles and Martha stood godfather and godmother to John Jr. But back in 51, they just wanted those two to meet. So one night in May, they threw a dinner party at their Georgetown home. Now this is the part of the story where we usually say, eh, that's ancient history. That there's no one alive today who remembers what happened on that night in Georgetown 72 years ago. But in this case, there is someone who remembers it all. Stand here for instance, learn how to balance things. See how the room is balanced? Yes. I get up in the middle of the night and move the furniture. Do you move it around? Martha Bartlett, the hostess of the dinner party where Jackie met JFK. And how much is this? No, 30,000. Is still very much alive, thank
20: you. Picasso said you've never seen a rooster until you've seen a rooster weather vane.
7: And living in Washington, in a house filled with American antiques. The, that's in the metropolitan, here's Pennsylvania. That is a reverb but 200 years old. And at age 97, her memories of what happened back in 51 are still alive as well. May 13th, 1951. What do you remember about that first dinner where Jack met Jackie? Well,
20: I wasn't too sure that he would enjoy Jackie or that she would enjoy him. So I had my other good friend, Loretta Summers. So we had an extra woman, which was very peculiar, (laughs) but we had it anyway. And so if he didn't like one, at least he wouldn't be bored because he did show boredom. Uh, Do you remember the menu? Probably, as usual, it was my same old chicken casserole.
7: Chicken casserole. That was what you served at these parties?
20: I'm afraid so. (laughs) You could name the menu before you sat down.
7: (laughs) Years later, Jackie shared her memories of that night. And according to author Carl Anthony, JFK made
8: quite an impression. She wrote about the first time she met John F. Kennedy and how she knew, as she put it, he would have a disturbing effect on my life and she says she almost felt like running but she knew that whatever heartbreak he was going to inevitably bring her it would be worth it
7: now we're gonna come in here and privately Martha says Jackie was in hot pursuit Jackie even said that the two of you were shamelessly matchmaking trying to get her and Jack together
20: I'd say she was the shameful one if there was anybody. (laughs) Why do you say that?
7: Well, she would goad me on. Oh, she would. What would she say?
20: Well, she would see an opening at a dance or something that we could invite Jack to.
7: And she'd say, or she'd cancel
20: her European friends so that she could see Jack instead. You know, if we hadn't been so close, I would have said
7: she used me to get to Jack. It was as much her idea as mine. And it seems she did whatever it took to improve her chances, like
8: paying a visit to family patriarch Joseph Kennedy. And whether it's a coincidence or not, several days after she visits Joe Kennedy, for the first time, the names Jackie Bouvier and John F. Kennedy are linked together in the gossip columns with a prediction that a wedding in the next year will be Bouvier and Kennedy. You know, she was never sort of gaga, crazy, doe-eyed, in love with him, that kind. They do begin to date, but he still kind of drags his feet. And she's a little bit disappointed that it's taking so long. And Wait, wait, wait. She's disappointed. What's
7: interesting is that this is the young woman who said, I'm not interested in marriage.
8: She said, I'm not interested in marriage. She never said she wasn't interested in an adventure that might take her to the White House.
7: What happened from then on is well documented.
8: In fashionable Newport, Rhode Island, the
12: wedding of U.S. Senator John F. Kennedy and socialite Jacqueline Lee Bouvier.
7: The Kennedy-Bouvier wedding in 1953 was one of the social events of the season, maybe the century. Charlie Bartlett was an usher. Martha Bartlett was one of more than a dozen bridesmaids. You were in the bridal party. What do you remember about that leading up to the wedding?
20: I don't know why, but she was not a happy bride particularly. I think it was due to the fact that her father couldn't give her away. Was he there? He was there. He got totally intoxicated the night before and couldn't get up the next
7: morning. For
12: the 36-year-old Massachusetts senator and his pretty 24-year-old bride.
7: And so began a union that still fascinates today. Martha Bartlett was there for a lot of it. That's her next to Jackie at the State of the Union. But for her, as with many of us, the Kennedy saga brings mixed emotions about a glamorous couple and a dream unfulfilled. So when you look back on your matchmaking, you and your husband's matchmaking, do you think job well done? No,
20: because I've, I find it terribly sad. What do you mean? It's
7: a sad tale.
20: You don't think so? In the end, yeah.
7: But I think we all like to believe that the beginning was magical. Yeah. And we all love fairy stories. Martha's husband, the late Charlie Bartlett, put it more simply. Talking about his role introducing JFK to his future bride, Charlie said he needed a gal. And we found him a hell of a gal.
11: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
4: Jim Gaffigan could not be happier.
19: Summer is here, and so are those summer expectations. First and foremost, there's an overwhelming pressure to enjoy summer. It's summer, summertime's here, don't waste it. I feel this every morning when I look out the window. Ugh, it's nice out there. I guess I should go out there and be uncomfortable. I wouldn't want summer to feel unappreciated. Of course, it's not enough to just enjoy the summer. We are all supposed to have well-mapped out summer plans. Every spring, the questions start. You got any plans for the summer? What are you doing this summer? Why do I need a plan? I thought summer was about relaxing. Wait, are we supposed to schedule when we relax? That sounds stressful. I relax by not having plans. Now, I understand my unplanned summer plan is not common, Most non-freelancers need to schedule a week off with their employers. This makes sense, but those aren't summer plans. That's called a vacation. Some adults talk about their summer plans as if they just graduated from eighth grade or are living off some endless family inheritance. The only adults who should have summer plans are teachers and NBA players. Summer plans usually involve a destination. You going anywhere this summer? Why does summer mean we have to travel? It makes no sense. Well, the weather's finally nice here, so I guess we should go somewhere else. We live here. All our stuff is here. Why would we go somewhere where our stuff isn't? That sounds like a situation we'd want to avoid. I almost had to go to this place where they didn't have any of my stuff. I really dodged a bullet there. Most summer destinations involve the pursuit of water, a lake, a river, the ocean, I live in the Northeast, so people always talk about the beach. The beach. Like it's a summertime Mecca. You guys going to the beach this summer? I hope not. Have you been to the beach? It's all sand, just sand and bugs. I never understood the appeal of the beach. Sometimes you have to pay to park at the beach. You pay to park, and then if you want to sit down, you have to bring your own chair. Yeah, I'll pass on the beach. My favorite thing to do on a beautiful summer day, take a nap dream about fall
11: uh. what
3: makes a life a good one is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect defend and save what you believe in every single day so what makes a life Good one. In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more, but you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit gocoastguard.com to learn more.
9: It takes the best to set new standards. The best don't play by the rules, they make their own and do it with confidence and class. And breaking the rules to change the game is something BMW knows all too well. BMW has combined sports car power with high end luxury. From redesigning the dashboard to hands-free controls, BMW stays at the forefront of automotive technology. Don't play by the rules. Make your own. BMW, the ultimate driving machine.
4: She's a poet, human rights activist, and the widow of a legendary author. Moraka is in conversation with Rose Styron on Martha's Vineyard.
18: I had a very lucky life all the way along, and I think it was because I lived in the present or looked forward.
16: At 95, Rose Styron has finally decided to look back at her life as a poet, a founding member of Amnesty International, a mother of four, and the wife of the late author William Styron, writer of The Confessions of Nat Turner and Sophie's
14: Choice. When you were younger, did you envision your life?
16: No. Now, it's Rose's turn in the spotlight. She's written a memoir and is the subject of a documentary by James Lapine.
18: When the 30th person has said to me, you're my role model, and I think, does that mean because I've survived till I was 90 or because I'm still having a good time?
14: Rose Styron uh, is a legend on Martha's Vineyard.
16: The Pulitzer
14: Prize-winning
16: playwright and filmmaker met Styron in 2014 on the Massachusetts island of Martha's Vineyard, and the two became fast friends.
14: Rose is a social animal. She lives for interaction with people. That is her passion, and as she says, because she loves to learn and loves being engaged in conversation. How did you get the name Rose? I
18: was named for my grandmother who died before I was born.
14: What was she like? Did you ever hear any? T- your mother's I mother? I nothing your father? about it? my
18: father's mother. I know nothing.
16: Rose Burgender was raised in a well-to-do Baltimore family. Meeting bold-faced names just seemed to come with the territory. This is the part in the piece where we say in voiceover, instead at 11, she begged to meet Diego Rivera. Yes. <laughs> Not Typical. Oh, really? Well, I don't think so for an 11-year-old. I don't know. The 11-year-old did meet the acclaimed Mexican artist, and the artwork her mother purchased that day hangs in Styron's home.
18: I remember my excitement at meeting this artist who I so admired. And as we were leaving, he leaned down and said to me, I hope someday you will be as great an artist as I am. I left and I said to my mother, he's full of himself, isn't he? (laughs) While living
16: in Rome in her 20s, Rose went for a drink with the writer William Styron, who just happened to be joined by another young writer named Truman Capote. Our
18: romance started that night and Truman looked 13 years old with his blonde hair. And by the end of the evening, he was saying, You to marry that girl.
16: (laughs) When you married Bill, you didn't expect it to last more than a couple of years.
18: I didn't. You know, we were having a wonderful romance. I hadn't thought about the future. I was just having fun.
16: The fun continued when the newlyweds settled in Roxbury, Connecticut. James Baldwin lived in their guest house for a spell. Philip Roth and Arthur Miller were frequent visitors.
18: My life was that of... Uh, you know a country housewife.
16: During the day Bill wrote while Rose raised the children but Rose ended up giving Bill a critical piece of feedback after she read the first draft of Sophie's Choice. Bill originally had the character of Sophie making her unimaginable choice between her children at Auschwitz at the
18: start of the book. I said you know you just can't make this the first chapter. There's not a mother in the world who will read chapter two. Can you somehow save it? And so he did. That was my only influence, I would say, into his writing. We have an awful lot in common. But I think after all these years, we're still a mystery to each other.
16: Like so many couples, the Styrens were a study in
18: contrasts. The novels were all in his head. The adventure was in his head. It was on paper. He was scared of adventure.
16: But you were not scared of adventure.
18: I couldn't wait. And I resented being <laughs> denied it, but marriage and Bill were more important, so I got over it each time. But
16: you and Bill had very different upbringings. Do you think that accounts maybe for... And it counts for what? For. Maybe him being scared of adventure and you craving adventure? Yes,
18: because he had to take care of his mother because she had developed cancer. And he was always aware that she might die. And she did when he was 13. So I think that's what set him on his pattern of being afraid of what was coming next
16: rose styron is candid about the challenges they faced in their marriage including their respective infidelities
18: it didn't matter if we felt affection for other people the fact is the main thing was our marriage and we weren't going to mess it up by going too far
16: she's equally forthright about the depression that afflicted her husband many of the artifacts of my house had
12: become potential devices for my own destruction
16: William Styron wrote about it in 1989. The disease returned in 2000, and he died with it in
18: 2006. Not having ever been depressed myself, I realized that I had a huge lapse of understanding, and I flunked often.
16: It doesn't sound like you did.
18: Well, I did.
16: How do you think you flunked?
18: In the last, you know, year, say, when he wanted to apologize to me for all the things he knew he had done wrong. And instead of letting him talk about it and going over it with him, I couldn't do it. It was a big lack. And I kept saying, no, 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 you're wrong. Everything was fine. Don't worry about that. Oh, that was nothing. But it reminded me of the bad times and I couldn't handle it.
16: Was it also, though, because you were never really a backward-looking person?
18: I never thought of that. Maybe. Maybe.
14: Her mind doesn't go to the places that most people's minds go. And it's not that she doesn't want to think about it or won't think about it, but she won't. She doesn't fester, I don't know how else to put it.
18: Well, we have friends Buried all around here, as you can see. Friends like
16: 60 Minutes correspondent Mike Wallace and humorist Art Buckwald.
18: So I guess I'll be right there sometime.
16: <laughs> not for a while.
18: I hope not. But I like that there are flowers coming up as this was, is where I'd be buried. <laughs> Maybe some roses will come up next.
14: What do you think keeps her going? I think a thirst, I think Rose has a thirst for life. I don't have that thirst for life, I'll tell you that. But I wish I did.
16: For Rose Styron, that thirst hasn't yet been quenched. Not a lot of people make new friends in their late 80s and 90s. True. I never thought of that. What do you think that says about you?
18: I think it says that (laughs) friendship... And family are the two most important things to me.
16: Are you still looking for new friends, or is your dance card filled?
18: (laughs) My dance card will never be filled.
4: Thank you for listening. Please join us when our trumpet sounds again next Sunday morning.